Thank you very much, Liam, for, uh, for introducing me. And thank you very much for coming to, to this seminar, workshop, lecture, whatever it turns out to be in the end. Um, the most important thing you can do is relax and uh, take any tension that you feel and, uh, and place it over here and allow yourself just to, to enter into this, perhaps for some, a very familiar arena, and for others, semi-familiar, and for others, perhaps just on the edge of things. Uh, in terms of who I am, uh, Ian Dixon, um, uh, he brought out a number of wonderful things about the Lord has blessed us with this wonderful daughter called Amy. My background is in pastoral ministry. I was a pastor for uh, too many years in Scotland. And then I returned to, uh, to Northern Ireland in 2004. And uh, I've been in the Bible College since then. I'm doing various jobs, and my job at the moment is to try and build up a uh, fairly unique project called TO, which is the idea of honoring the indispensable parts of the body of Christ, which has to do with 1 Corinthians 12 and the area of intellectual disability in particular. So what I want to talk to you about today is this title of intellectual disability in the gospel, The Jesus Way. And I want to start off by asking some questions. You know, asking the right questions in life is one of the greatest skills we can develop because often we don't get anywhere in any kind of ministry or any kind of personal experience. If we're not asking the right kind of questions, we can go down different avenues than the ones we expected simply because the question isn't perhaps the question at the heart of things. So perhaps in seeing the blurb about this seminar, you expect certain questions to be addressed. And it may be that they're not directly addressed. It may be the questions that I'm about to raise are not necessarily the questions that you would have put in your head for this particular seminar. But that's good because there's an element of surprise. There's an element of unpredictability. And there's always a sense of unpredictability in what the Lord is doing and what the Lord is doing in our lives and although this seminar is, in a sense, niche in the sense of intellectual disability and people with learning disability, people with various shades of disability, this impacts the church enormously. As a center, we work on a kind of equation. And that equation is simply theology plus ecclesiology equals practice. Lots of people want answers to solutions, to practical problems, and we understand that and we know that all in our lives. And particularly with the integration of people with disabilities within the Christian church, people are looking for very specific answers to that. The way we work is that we get there, but the way we get there is through theology, is through thinking about the nature of God, who we are as human beings, all of us, and from that point, then we add ecclesiology. In other words, what is the church? What is the church for? So when you start to add theology and ecclesiology, you start to add the nature of God, the nature of humanity, and you start to investigate what is the church and why is the church here and what is the church for and what is my church doing and why is my church doing it? Then you equal practice. You begin to discover that on the basis of who God is, on the basis of who I am, and on the basis of what the church is, then we do these things. So we have a rationale for doing them. We have a reason for doing them. So part of that will be reflected in the big questions that I want to answer in this hour. 
There are three questions, and each of them we're going to explore a little bit. You're going to get a chance to speak to one or two people around you if you like the look of them. If you don't like the look of them, speak to them anyway. You may get to know them and like them in five minutes' time, okay? So you're going to get a chance to talk to one another and talk in maybe a small group later on, but only for a few minutes because we want to use the time well and we want to move on to, to the next thing. So let me introduce my first huge, massive question. How do we know God at all? Now I'm starting from the whole premise of how do you know God? We know God in the Christian Orthodox understanding by the word, by the reality of revelation. And we know God by revelation because God has revealed to us that we know him by revelation. So the very fact that you know God is that God has revealed himself to you in a particular way at a particular time and continues to do so. Of course, the word revelation means an unveiling. It's taking what is unknown and making it known. Now, I wanted this morning to get you to think about how do we know God at all? And it is by this powerful process of revelation. And in that sense of revelation, you know, when you meet someone for the first time, you learn something about them, they tell you something, they unveil something about themselves. And in that unveiling of something about themselves, they implicitly are saying they want come kind of relationship with you. And so you get to know them a bit. You know, like on a first date, you ask something and you discover something. And if you like what you discover, then you ask some more. And as the unveiling takes place, the offer of a relationship, or maybe not the offer of a relationship. In other words, you have the ability and the right, in a sense, to accept or reject the revelation that is given to you from that person. And say, I want to have a relationship or a friendship with you. And so God, in the very act of being who he is, and the essence of God revealing himself to us is saying he wants a relationship. A.W. Tozer, a great American uh, evangelistic leader in the mid-20th century, wrote what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So the core tenant, the core thing at Christianity, the very center of things, is that God can be known. And that's where we begin with intellectual disability and the gospel. That God can be known. Two questions come out of that. What is therefore to be known about God? Secondly, how can we know what there is to be known? Now, the revelation of God, I'm going to put a series of things. Sorry you can't see this screen very well, sort of minute uh, up here, but uh, I'm going to just talk through them. So you'll, you'll see each one as I go. 
I'm going to speak through each of these words very quickly and just build up a sense of this idea of revelation. Hopefully you'll see where I'm going. Because the most important probably question that we're addressing here is how can we know God at all as a human being? Now that's not as a disabled human being. That's not as an able human being. That is simply as a human being. How can any human being know God? So it is by revelation. But what kind of revelation has been revealed? Well, all we know about God is because God has self-revealed, self-revelation. Christianity is a revelatory faith. And God is both the one who reveals it and the revelation he reveals. So God does everything. It is all of his grace in choosing to reveal what he chooses to reveal, and he reveals about himself what he chooses to reveal. So your Christian life, your spiritual life, is a series of ways in which God has revealed himself to you, and he chooses in his sovereignty what to reveal, when to reveal, how to reveal, and to what end is that revelation. So it's a self-revelation. We are utterly dependent, all of us, as human beings, on the self-revelation of God. But it's also a willing revelation. God is not forced to do anything. God is supreme. So God is willing and wanting and desiring, if we may use that of God, to reveal himself to us. God is not being forced by some greater power to reveal himself to us reluctantly. God is generous, abundant, desiring to reveal himself to you in your spiritual life. So it's willing. But it's also partial and progressive. What God reveals and gifts to us is good for us. In a sense, it's sufficient revelation. It's enough to have an authentic relationship with the supreme and sovereign God. God reveals what we need to know. And so, we finite humanity in our small, compact packages called human bodies... Various sizes, various shapes, various heights, various colors, various backgrounds, various cultures. But essentially, we are sharing that human race that we all belong to. We are about this height, and the God who made everything wants a relationship with a little creature this height, or that height, or in my case, this height. This is extraordinary that God, who is the God of the universe and holds everything together, wants a relationship with you sitting in a tent on an August day. And God wants that relationship with every human being. It is a partial, progressive relationship. We cannot bear everything that God is in his entirety. You know, Jesus himself said, he said very clearly, I have many things to tell you to these worn out, struggling disciples of his who were trying to understand what is this master doing and saying. 
I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. There is a time when God reveals things to you, as you know in your Christian experience, I hope, that God has revealed various things to you. And it seems like you would like to know more, but he has withdrawn, and he comes back to you again later part of your life, and very slowly, graciously, wonderfully, gently, sometimes more abruptly than others, God reveals himself graciously to you again and again until you get it. And God does that with all of us. Whether you've got a learning disability, no disability, a physical disability, or a simply a disability of the heart, which we all share. So, there's another word you need to add, because then you need to, if this is a partial progressive revelation, then there are parts of God, there are aspects of God that are not disclosed. There are mysteries we are not party to. There are places we cannot travel. There are details we are not told. There are connections we cannot make. The mystery of God is part of his revelation. He reveals to us that part of who he is, he will not reveal to us. So many of our big, big human questions are not revealed. And we need to live lightly and wonderfully with the mystery of God, that everything doesn't have an answer in this part of our human experience. And that's extremely important, that we live contentedly with a God who doesn't tell us everything. And that's extremely important. When Amy was born into our family, we became parents of a wonderful little girl with Down syndrome. God didn't tell us everything. God didn't tell us why. And there are times in our Christian life when that is absolutely correct, isn't it? God doesn't tell you everything, but that's because of who God is. He's a God who chooses not to disclose certain things because you cannot bear them now or because in his sovereignty... This is not the moment. This is not the time. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, Proverbs 25. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29. Oh, the depth of the riches of his wisdom, how unsearchable his judgments, his past beyond tracing, Romans 11. Then one more thing is that this revelation is sometimes known as accommodating, an act of accommodation. Now that needs a little bit of explaining in the sense of some of you are in accommodation at the moment, we assume, in some caravan, tent, or some other more salubrious, um, expensive accommodation that you've saved up for. But you are all in some kind of accommodation. It is not that kind of accommodation. It is the accommodation in which God clothes himself and clothes his revelation, if you like, in forms that we understand. God is infinite. God is endless. God is eternal. God is powerful. God is splendid. God is majestic. God is beyond our greatest thought of him. God is infinitely beyond our greatest thought of him. Therefore, how does God communicate with us who are this height, and we wander around speaking in words, and we struggle so God accommodates himself to human words, and so we have the Bible. 
God accommodates himself within that Bible in speaking in various ways, through oracles, through visions, through the prophets, and finally through his Son, Jesus Christ, where the Word became flesh. In other words, God incarnate became a human being, whatever height. And so God accommodates himself to all of us. The revelation you have received, the gospel you have been preached with too, and the gospel that you have embraced is an accommodating revelation of God capturing what you need to know. Now, if God accommodates himself to every single living human being, that includes the fact that I may have intellectual capacity, cognitive ability, I may be on a genius level, but God is still accommodating, even though in human terms I may be intellectually elite. But if I am not intellectually elite, if I am in the middle range, then God accommodates himself that I would understand and know the grace that he extends to me. But if I am not even in the middle range, if I am in the lowest range, if I am cognitively impaired, if for some reason I cannot get my head around what some of the propositions are the Christian church is saying, then God accommodates his revelation. He works in all our hearts. Our theology comes out of our spiritual experience. Theology is in a human attempt to explain what God does. And so God works in the hearts of those who have profound disability, who have a range of disabilities, because disability and intellectual disability is a vast spectrum. But that's why I'm beginning with Revelation. How does anyone know you see, one of the problems is that we perhaps have over-intellectualized Christianity. And it's really only accessible through education. We have to be able to read the Bible, we're told. We have to be able to understand cognitively. We need some kind of logic. We need some kind of biblical background. We need to understand culture. We need to understand A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc., etc., we think, we overthink. But God, who accommodates himself to all people, is more than capable, surely, of communicating in different ways within the heart of a person who cannot theologically articulate what they believe. But they can experience God. You see, my limited experience with Amy and she's a wonderful, bright little girl. My experience is that Amy has very few hang-ups. She's not um, trying to pretend to be someone. Um, she's not seeking to impress you. She's not worried too much about consequences. What she does is experience life. What I do is I analyze life. I think about life. I ask too many questions. I reflect. And by the time I've reflected and thought and so forth, the spontaneous moment of response to God is gone. 
What I'm saying is that, in a sense, Amy is perhaps freer to express her spirituality than I am because of my intellectual training. Now, we don't decry the intellect because we are to love the Lord our God with all our minds and all our souls and all our, all our hearts. And so whatever God's ability is within you as a human being this height, then you are accountable to God for the use of who you are and what he has given you. And also, this revelation is a revelation of grace. It's a revelation that demands a human response. For example, Moses, when he found the burning bush, he stood back. He heard God. He heard God reveal himself and saw God revealing himself as a God who's holy. And he was to respond in a certain way to that holiness. He was to take the shoes off his feet because the ground which he stood on was holy. In other words, there was a revelation and then there was a response. And we need to seek to be responders to the appropriate revelation of God. Now that's all just to say, how do we know God at all? Regardless of any ability, education, background, age, gender, etc. We all know God the same way, by his revelation. Now what I would like you to do, if it's okay with you, is to speak to the person beside you and just share for a moment, very quickly, a revelation, something that just happened in your life that just seems to be from God. And it's like God revealed himself as, for example, a God who forgives me. And how that impacted your life, what was your response to that? So very quickly, think back over your, your Christian experience. However long it is, whether it's a week, a year, 40 years, just one incident, one moment, where you believe God revealed himself to you and how you responded to that. Okay? It may be last night, it may have been this morning, or it may have been 20 years ago. Okay? Just for a few minutes. If you could finish off just there, I know you're anxious to get to know them and um, say much, much more, but you can do it later on. Um, if you didn't get to the response bit, you can keep that to later. But uh, the whole idea, the buzz is, is very healthy. Um, obviously, God has been revealing himself to you in all kinds of ways. So you're absolutely ready on the spot to just to say what that is. So brilliant. Um, and just identifying, learning to identify the way God uh, reveals himself to you and then how you respond to that is really important in terms of your own spiritual growth and so forth. The second big question, the first question, how do we know God at all? And we're in the, the realm of revelation. Second big question is, what is Jesus looking for? So, I want to try and um, bring out a few things, but I don't want to feed them too quickly to you. And while you're in the, in the spirit of talking to one another, perhaps you could talk a little more. Um, what is Jesus looking for? And eventually we want to get to the question, is the church looking for the same thing? Now, we won't get to the church bit just at this moment, because we'll come to that in a few minutes' time. But what is Jesus looking for? Let me put it another way. 
That says, in case you can't read it, it says, um, identify the things that you feel are needed in order to become a Christian. In other words, to become a follower of what Acts calls the way, the Jesus way, Jesus being the way. So what are the things that you would identify as needed in order to become a Christian? Okay? So can you go back to the person you were talking to, and perhaps if you want to add the circle a little bit bigger, please do that, but at least talk to the person you just left. Okay? And uh, if you want to bring in the people in front of you or people behind you, um, that's great. But just for a few minutes, what are the things that you feel you actually need in order to become a Christian? Okay? And then we'll get a few people just to share those and, and hear what you're saying. Okay? Just a few minutes. I hope you've identified in your, in your uh, whether you're with one person or in a small group, I hope you've identified a number of things that you would say you need in order to become a Christian. So perhaps just to, to get a sense or a flavor of that, perhaps you would feel free to shout out a few words or a little phrase that just captures what you've been saying. Um, I'll repeat it for the sake of the microphone and those listening um, to this seminar. Bless you if you are listening to this seminar. Thank you for joining us. So... Who would like to just uh, shout out a phrase or a, a list of things? Yes. They can give the conclusion that you don't need anything, that Jesus accepts us as we are, and you just need to bring yourself to him. Okay? This is like a tree uh, branching off in different ways in which you need faith and repentance. Yeah. Understanding of sin. Yeah. Why you... you in order to... to to get right, you have to know what you've, how you've gone wrong, basically. So there has to be a, some kind of understanding of wrongness to discover the rightness in Christ. Is that a fair? Have I summarized that okay? Yeah, okay. Okay, that, that answer was related around compassion and, and compassion and the necessity for compassion in, in every human being. Okay. Um, that answer uh, said about needing the, some kind of knowledge of God an awareness of God or a knowledge of God, and bringing in the aspects of following um, uh, and being led by the Lord, I presume, in a Christian life. Yeah. Those are all um, very valid, very real answers. Now, many of those answers, which I'll need to leave you with, um, many of those answers, if you take a person with... Um, various forms of intellectual disability or learning disability, some of those things may be very difficult to to understand how that works. Um, just how much knowledge is needed, just how much learning is needed, just how much awareness is needed, or is awareness a spiritual thing, or is in the end what I'm going to suggest to you, some of the things. Um, those are all very valid, but what I want you to go away with um, is and, and those who are listening uh, on, uh, on, on the recording, is to think now through how would we understand those and, and bring those into reality in the lives of people with intellectual disabilities and the challenges and challenges they would bring. 
What I would say, a um, number of things. Um, for me, salvation is a spiritual experience. It's something that happens internally. I'm, I'm, I'm reborn by the Spirit of God. I'm born of the Spirit. So there's an internal change. There's a supernatural rebirth. But salvation is a spiritual experience by His grace. And, uh, and God works in that way in hearts and lives that we may find um, difficult to comprehend. And indeed, we become very curious in our churches, don't we, about where so-and-so stands spiritually and, and, and where so-and-so is in relation to salvation. And we're looking for various signs and marks and so forth. We have to rethink all these in terms of people with intellectual disabilities because sometimes it's, it's just not like that. And we have to allow our theology to expand as God reveals to us what he is actually doing. You think of the day of Pentecost, the huge spiritual experience, communal spiritual experience that was, that was present because God was working. And then Peter gets up and he tries to explain as best he can as a human being about this height. He tries to explain using Joel, etc., etc., what God is doing from the scriptures. But in a sense, his explanation falls very far short of the very powerful reality of what God's doing in their lives. So we need to be very careful um, because a person who cannot theologically articulate, cannot tell you in the way that you would like them to speak in terms of evangelical vocabulary or evangelical understanding. A person who cannot do that with any real meaning at all, but experiences something very powerful of God, it doesn't make that experience invalid if they can't explain it to you. So that's really quite important. And then a few things that I picked out was... Um, I remembered the verse in Luke uh, chapter 18, when the Son of Man comes, um, will he find faith on the earth? What is Jesus looking for? Faith. But what is faith? Is faith intellectual assent? Or is faith something active, something trusting, something saying, I simply trust. Again, going back to my daughter, because she is my major reference and my major passion and my major motivation. But she, um, if you're in church with her, um, she is into, into the worship of God without inhibition. But she's also into, if, you, if the guy up the front or the girl up the front says, we're going to pray now, and if you have a moment's lapse in which you don't look like you're praying she will physically get hold of you and she will say, pray. And you just think, okay, I'll pray. Wasn't explained. There's no theology of prayer. She just talks to God who is bigger than her and is with her. It's very powerful. And there I am, I give, you know, three-hour lectures on the meaning of prayer to students. And actually... Um, Amy just needs to come in and just grab each one of them and say, pray. In a sense, the Lord maybe just didn't grab, but when he gave the Lord's Prayer, he, they said, you know, how do you pray? And he says, this is how you pray. It's not how you pray. Teach us to pray. And, 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 and he explained. 
So, um, faith is really important. Trust is really important. Relationship in Christian understanding is important, having that relationship. And that idea of discipleship. And then a question I throw out to you that you can think about yourself. How do you grow spiritually? How do you actually grow spiritually? I mean, what, what does it mean to grow spiritually? Can you get any better when you pray? I mean, do you become an expert in pray because you've been a Christian 30 years? Do you get any better in praying? Is it possible to get better in praying? Do we actually grow in that kind of area? How do you grow? Oswald Chambers was very powerful in this. And he spoke about intellectual ability may bring growth in our knowledge, but obedience brings growth in our spirituality. When we obey, we grow. Now, it may require some, it may require some intellectual ability to, to, to obey. It may just require not intellectual ability to obey, but a spontaneity to do what is plainly and simply there. You know. You know, we hold back, don't we? Someone comes into our church and, you know, they're a bit, you know, off the wall or a bit dirty or a bit weird or a bit... They just don't look like the normal Northern Ireland Christian at all. They just, just don't look like them at all. And um, and we hesitate and we think, well, well what do we do here? Um, how do I communicate here? Again, my little daughter goes up and says, hi, sit here. She's quite abrupt, really. Takes from my wife, not me. Sit here, pray. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful pastoral model. Um, but of course, we might not get away with it um, in many ways. Then there's a passage in Luke chapter 14. And uh, in Luke chapter 14, it's about the banquet. Um, do you remember where they gave the invitation to the great, the good, and so forth? Um, and they were they were um, they were occupied with very many other things, and uh, and they couldn't come, and so uh, they go out into the highways and byways, and they bring people in, and then they go out into the lanes and so forth, and they bring in the lame, the disabled, the blind, and so forth. That um, that sort of passage is very powerful among disability theologians, and they talk about it endlessly. And I suppose um, the, the 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 point that I raise with it is. God is different to us. The church that he has created is different to the world because God is different. The problem the church often has is that the church tries to be too like the world. Actually, the survival, not the survival, but the, the flourishing of the church lies in its distinctiveness and offering the world what the world cannot give. And one of the things that the Christian church needs to get its head around is what can it give to the world through the lives of Christians who have intellectual disabilities and who serve the Lord Jesus in a local church. And any barriers to that we need to rethink and remove in our thinking in our churches. So let me ask the question very simply, quickly. Corporately asking the question, we ask, what is Jesus looking for within an individual heart? But what is Jesus looking for in the church? Well, the book of Revelation has seven letters to churches, which are very, very instructive. But also here in Luke 14, what is, what is there present there? 
you know, there's this ecclesiology, this teaching about the church, which is to do with inclusion. He wants a full house, that my house may be full. That's what the parable says, that the house may be full. Now, that doesn't mean there's so many people in it. And when we get to a certain number, it's full, like this tent. When we get to a certain number, sorry, you're not in. It's not numerical. It's the whole idea of embracing, embracing the different, embracing everyone into the Christian church. And the servant's activity is part of creating a full house. That's what you're doing in your Christian church when you return to it. Or you're part of the church here. You're part of the church everywhere you are. But when you return to your local expression of that church, what you're involved in as a servant of Christ is a bigger picture, which is a full house. Not by force, but by grace. And there's an open invitation. That's what I think Jesus is looking for in the church. People who have vision of the full house, vision of the openness of this invitation. And then he says to them, go quickly, go quickly. And there's an ecclesiology of adventure. Because what he's saying to them is, I want you to go where you don't normally go. I want you to go into paths that you don't normally go into. You go to the great and the good and the ones who look like you. And talk like you and dress like you and drive cars like you. But what I want you to do is to be radical and to go where the marginalized are, where the pain is, where the suffering is. I want you to go outside the city because where Jesus died was outside the city. And the disabled in those days culturally were outside the gates. And so Jesus says, go there. And so we need a radicalness, a renewal of the radicalness. And then, of course, it ends up in a celebration, a celebration in which everyone who came is involved, which includes the disabled and the non-disabled, as we might put it. In other words, everybody celebrates. There's no categories here. That The celebration within the Christian church should be decategorized, should be unlabeled. That we celebrate and worship together, because in heaven there will be no categorization, at least biblically, I can't find it. So they go out, and they bring in, and they welcome. Mephibosheth, in the Bible, he had a disabled leg. He had problems. He was brought to the king's table. He ate with the king. One of the servants, Ziba, was sent out to work the land for him. He was brought in and sat at the king's table in celebration, in care of that individual. He sat there with a disability. He wasn't healed before he sat there. He brought his disability with him and he was accepted out of love, out of responsibility, out of obligation, out of graciousness. It's that kind of picture. It's that kind of motivation that, 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 that um, it sort of moves us on. So that's why I say these questions are really quite big and I have one more. We've only just got a few minutes but Let's go on to the third one. Whose stories count? Now, I do research, um, and various um, students have done research in, in the context in which I work. And often we go to people to hear their stories and to hear what they want to say. Stories are really, really important. Sometimes when you're dealing with people with intellectual disabilities, they're not too able to give the story to you. Maybe parents give the story, friends give the story, the pastor gives the story. 
whose story counts? And this is getting more to the heart of the church. And, and really, if we allow this to uh, get inside and wiggle, <laughs> it can be disturbing. Whose story actually counts in the church? Whose story actually counts in the world? And you think about your church and how that church operates. Whose stories counts in the context of your church? You, you see, churches are places where stories are told. And these stories change the world. Stories change the world. This island of Ireland, we live with stories. We've been told stories for generations. And we believe those stories. Different parts of our community tell different stories. And then we try to combine our stories. And we try to forget our stories. But the story continues. And the stories need change. If you change the story, you change what happens. Stories are very powerful. And in Luke chapter 24, you've got two guys on the road. Do you remember them? Cleopas and the other one? And they're walking along the road, and, and they're despondent, and they're, they're broken dreams, and they thought the Messiah had come, but he actually died, which is really hard to get your head around. And so despondently, they move down this road. They're hearing rumors that he might be alive, but they go down this road, and this stranger comes beside them, as you do when you travel along the dusty roads um, to Jericho, Jerusalem. And they're talking away, and... Um, the stranger says to them, you know, they're talking away, and they say to you, have you not heard these things? And the stranger says, what things? The God who created every single planet, every single star, the God who was there eternity from the beginning, the God who became incarnate, the God who is the Spirit of Christ, asked two human beings about this height, what things? He didn't ask for his own benefit. He asked for theirs. What he did was create a space for allow them to tell their story. They were hurt. They were pained. And he just allowed them a space. Can I say to you, that is probably in my view, which is very limited and only about this height, one of the biggest problems in the Christian church, there is no space to tell your story. Indeed, at times, there's no one to listen to that story. And we carry the story along the road between ourselves, and the Lord says, tell me about it. Then what happens is extraordinary. They tell their story, then Jesus tells his story, and beginning with himself, he tells them the gospel. What happens then is you've got two stories, their story and his story, and they remain separate. But what happens is that there's a moment of revelation in which those stories become a new story. The story of those lives become part of the story of Jesus, and the story of Jesus becomes part of their story, and a new story is intertwined. What happens to that story very quickly is that they go back to Jerusalem and tell the story to the church. And then the church in Jerusalem takes the greater, bigger story to the world. And I'll leave you this thought to take away thinking 
The world needs to hear the story, the big story of the church. And the big story of the church needs to include the stories of people who have disabilities. And the faith and discipleship and the spirituality that they bring to enrich the Christian church. And to make it church that the indispensable parts of the body are actually in the body. And so, we tell the story. My colleagues praying with the people next door. I should be doing that. Before I do that, there's a thing going around at the moment within the world that I work about the irresistible church. And so I leave you with this question. What is required for a church to be irresistible to a person with intellectual disabilities? My suggestion is create a place where they can tell their story and where that story is heard and that story is woven into the gospel and that story is touched by the Spirit and that story is told by the church. That to me is irresistible. But there may be many other things that you feel would make church irresistible. So go home and think, how can I make my church irresistible to people with intellectual disabilities? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for each person represented here. Thank you that you reveal yourself in their hearts and lives. And today, we pray that you are working and that they are responding. We pray that in our thinking about what your son is looking for, indeed what you're looking for, in all our lives, to love mercy and to act justly, and to walk humbly with our God. And Lord, our stories are very precious. Every story of every person in this tent is precious to your heart. Every story of the person who is listening on this recording, in whatever circumstances they are, are very precious. May they find a body of believers, a Christian church, in which their story has space to be heard, and which their story is interwoven with the story of Jesus, in which their story is touched by the Spirit of God, and in which their story becomes part of the big story that our church, your church, tells the world. Father, we ask your blessing upon our thoughts and upon your word and spirit and life in us. In Jesus' name, amen.